welcome. This is the weekly Sunday sermon from Redeemer Bible Church in Temecula, California. You can find us at RedeemerSoCal.org. This week's message by Lou Dawson, Why Live Godly. The original date of this message was the 8th of October, 2023. Well, good morning, Redeemer Bible Church. My name is Lou Dawson, and it's my great joy and privilege to come. What's that? Yeah, I do, right here. It's my great joy and privilege to come and share God's word with you this morning. During my, during my college career, back in the Stone Age, because <laughs> it, was, it was a long time ago. thought about that the other day, a lot of years. Um, during that time, I actually lived on campus during my undergraduate years, those four undergraduate years. And there was really much about that time that ended up being very foundational in the development of my uh, passion for making disciples of Jesus Christ who reproduced their lives into the lives of other people. That's been my passion for many, many years. They call that spiritual reproduction. That's what uh, I'm all about. And one of these foundational undertakings was getting involved in an on-campus organization, which at the time was called Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, This group has since changed their name to CRU. It's spelled C-R-U, pronounced CRU. Uh, And they are still involved in making disciples uh, worldwide. In fact, one of our missionary couples here that we support here at RBC, Jonathan and Nancy Fitzgerald, are part of this particular organization. As I became involved in Campus Crusade, I naturally got to know many of the leaders in that organization. And though I wouldn't say I ever came to know him really well, I did meet and become acquainted with the founder and the president of the organization, a man named Bill Bright. Uh, Bill has since passed away, but a couple of my interactions that I had with Bill Bright left really a very indelible impression on me. And the first of these impressions was formed during a local campus crusade conference, and I I think it was happening up in in, uh, San Bernardino, which was where they were headquartered. And during the evening session of that conference, Bill Bright was the keynote speaker, and the Cal Poly delegation of students happened to be very, very close to the stage, so I could really see what was really going on up there. And before Bill spoke, one of the Campus Crusade leaders led a very, very meaningful time of musical worship, and it was very, very worship-oriented. And as he returned to his seat and sat down next to, next to Bill, I, again, I was up close, so I could see <clears throat> Bill leaned over, and whispered something in this worship leader's ear. And it was very brief. And the worship leader returned to the podium, and he led us in another song that was very, very much oriented to worshiping and loving and adoring Jesus Christ. And he indicated that Bill had actually requested that we sing another song of praise to Jesus before he came up to speak. And when Bill came up to the podium... And again, I could see this. Um, His love for our Lord and his great joy in worshiping him, it just lit up his whole countenance. And that quiet joy and that 
and that peace and just the gentleness of Christ really permeated the whole message that he gave us that particular night. And after the conference, I remember being astonished to see a man that was, that was so obviously overwhelmed with love and reverence for Jesus. And to my shame, I, I remember kind of secretly wondering whether that affection was, was real or something he just kind of painted on. At the time, I was certainly zealous for Christ, but I was also a relatively young believer at the time. And I really didn't have that type of deep love for Jesus that I saw in Bill Bright. My second impression of Bill was formed a few years later. I had graduated from Cal Poly, and I had taken a job uh, in the firm, uh, with a pharmaceutical company and was returning home from a week-long conference in Chicago. And being very tired after a very long week, I was really looking forward to getting on the airplane and just plopping down and going to sleep. If any of you guys have traveled a lot, you know what that's all about. So I sat down in my aisle seat in the airplane, and, and uh, shortly after I sat down, who walks up the aisle? Bill Bright and his wife, Vanette. And they're walking up the aisles. I'm sitting there, and they sat down two rows in front of me on the same side of the airplane that I was on. And I, I could tell that he was quite tired as well as I was, but, but I could also see that same joy on his face that I had observed many, many years earlier. And what was even more interesting is that with 15 minutes or so before the plane flight took off, and if you can imagine this, it was actually fairly sparsely populated. I don't think that actually ever happens anymore. Uh, Bill actually got out from his seat, and with two or three of the folks that were around him, he gave a track to and just talked to him real briefly uh, and evidently asked them to, to read the track. Because what happened is after we got in the air and after they, they turned off the everybody's got to be seated sign so he could get up, he actually got, got back up and with each one of those people, he sat down and I, I couldn't hear the conversation, but he obviously sat down with each one of those people and he shared the gospel with them. And after observing all this, I, uh, well, I gathered up my courage <laughs> and I got up, and I introduced myself to Bill after he had sat down. And I could tell he was visibly very, very weary uh, after I, he told me he had had a long week in Chicago as well at, at various meetings. But again, he radiated that same quiet joy about him. And in person, he was, he was very soft-spoken. And if you know what I mean, he was a gentle man, a gentle man, but he exuded still that same deep love for Jesus. And we had a wonderful f conversation, and as I sat back down in my seat, I realized that God's grace had genuinely transformed Bill Bright into a man who was a walking, breathing, 
representation of Jesus to every person that he met, whether they be Christians like me or to non-Christians as well. Well, back in the Apostle Paul's day, in direct contrast to a man like Bill Bright, Paul was actually dealing with men on the island of Crete who loudly professed Christ with their mouths, but they lived like the lawless culture around them in their lives. There was a complete disconnect between their words and their actions. And Paul described these men to Titus in Titus chapter 1, verse 16, commenting, These men profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Tell us what you really think, Paul. <laughs> and to make matters worse, these guys that he's talking about here, they were actually the leaders in many of the churches on Crete. And as such, they were, they were just reaping havoc in, in these congregations, causing many to fall away from their faith and discrediting Christianity to all of the pagans who were standing around watching these people. And to combat this terrible situation, Paul exhorted Titus to appoint godly elders in the Cretan churches, men who would in turn encourage their flocks to embrace their faith in Christ and live godly lives to support their professions. In other words, this combination of righteous faith and righteous living is what he encouraged them. And he pointed out that this would result in the word of God not being dishonored. And that's in Titus chapter 2, verse 5. And he pointed out that it would result in opponents not having anything bad to say about Christians. And that's in Titus 2, verse 8. And then in Titus 2, verse 10, he pointed out that it would result in non-believers actually having positive things to say about Christians. And then in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, which is the next, the next passage there, Paul laid out reasons why true Christians should both believe in the gospel of grace and live godly as a result of that gospel. And this is the passage I want to study with you this morning, with the title of this morning's sermon being the question, Why Live Godly? Now go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, and follow along as I read these verses out loud. Paul exhorted Titus, he said, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Let's pray before we dive into this passage. Lord, we, we desperately need your insight. 
We need um, the conviction of your spirit and the teaching of your spirit, or else we're just not going to get it. Lord, we acknowledge that. But we know that you love us dearly and, and you will teach us. So do that for your glory's sake, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now in this passage, Paul gives three reasons why, why should we live godly lives. Three reasons. And the first reason why believers should live godly lives is because God's grace has appeared to all mankind. And we see that in verse 11. But before we go much further, we must think about what is God's grace? What is grace? Now, many of us know the technical definition of it, and that is is that grace is unmerited favor. And this is certainly correct, but in less technical terms, God's grace is is him giving us good gifts that we in no way deserve. That's what grace is. And I don't know about you, but I'm exceedingly aware of God's grace that he has lavished on me. Uh, For all my hardness of heart and my rebellion against him over all the years that I have been a Christian and all the years I was a pagan, because I was that too, um, God should have really reduced me to a pile of smoking ash. That's what he should have done. Yet he has showered mercy on me, and he lavished all kinds of gracious gifts on me that I in absolutely no way deserve. And I suspect that most of you would testify in a similar way to that. But notice that in verse 11, Paul indicated that God's grace has appeared you see, God's marvelous grace was, was manifested oh so clearly in a person who came to live among us, the person of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, verses 14 and 16, the apostle John put it this way. He said, and the word, which is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. For of Jesus' fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. You see, Jesus coming to live among us was, it was the ultimate demonstration of God's grace. And he came to earth not to heap deeply deserved condemnation upon us broken humans, but he came to save He came to save. As Jesus himself said, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. What a supremely gracious God we have. All of us believers deserve God's judgment for our rebellion against him. And instead, he graciously gave Jesus to save us. In fact, later on in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, in the next chapter there, Paul expanded on this thought, commenting that, For we also were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we had done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Notice back in our text in Titus chapter 2, 
that the appearing of God's grace in Jesus, it, it brought salvation to all men. Now, at first glance, it would appear that Paul is indicating that Jesus appearing, it saved all of mankind. But when we look at the rest of Scripture, it's clear that many, if not most, people will not be saved. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, Jesus exhorted his listeners. He told them, guys, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who actually find it. And why will most people not be saved? The Apostle John clearly answers this question in John three sixteen through 18. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Most people will not be saved because they refuse to trust in Jesus for, for their sin, for the forgiveness of their sin. So really looking at all of Scripture together and pulling it all together, we conclude that the appearing of God's grace in the person of Jesus, it brought about, it, it brought about the means and the opportunity for salvation, not universal salvation. Anyone who trusts in Jesus' death on the cross as payment for their sins, they will be saved. Now, interestingly, in our Titus passage, Paul stated that the gracious appearing of Jesus to all mankind was the first reason why we should live godly lives. You see, God's great kindness and his great love for us was graciously and prominently displayed in sending Jesus to the earth to pay the penalty for our sin. And the appropriate response to God's immense grace in Christ is to, to dedicate ourselves to walking in loving fellowship with him, seeking to be holy like he is. Godly living is the rational response to the grace of God manifested in Jesus Christ. Now the second reason why believers should live godly is because God's grace instructs believers to live godly lives. That's what it says. If you look in verses 12 through 13 of our passage, Paul said that God's grace has appeared instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly. In the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And in these verses, we not only see that the appearing of God's grace was the reason why we should live godly, but it also, it also tutors us. It, it trains us in what godly living actually looks like. 
as Paul explained to Titus here, broadly speaking, godly living means that we put off certain things and we put on other things in their place. And there are a number of interesting things to note about Paul's comments here. First of all, he indicates that God's grace, it, it continually instructs believers. The same word is used in various places in the scriptures for the process of, of training, of teaching, and even disciplining somebody. That word is used that way in Hebrews. And this is the exactly what God's grace in Christ does. It trains, it teaches, it disciplines us to live godly lives. Then the apostle goes on and explains what this gracious training looks like. Now, the first aspect of the instruction of God's grace in Christ is that it trains us to put off ungodliness and worldly desires. And we see that in verse 12. Now, the word that Paul uses here for putting off is the word to deny. He says that we deny those things. And the grammar that Paul uses here makes it clear that this, this denial is it's ongoing and it's continual. And the word that he uses here for deny, it's a very, very strong word. It's the same word that is used of Peter vehemently denying Christ three times. It's the word that Jesus used when he said, if anyone desires to follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And in the context of Titus chapter 2, verse 12, it has the idea behind it of, of every single day refusing any association with of, of saying forcefully, no, of renouncing any involvement with the, world, the world's desires. And Paul said that there were two items in particular that God's grace instructs us to forcefully and continually deny. And the first of them is ungodliness. And this refers to the, the disposition and general attitudes that unbelievers have toward God. They don't want to bow the knee to his lordship. They do not want to live their lives his way. They want to devote themselves to doing their own thing and not what's pleasing to them. They want to please their own flesh. God's grace in Christ disciplines us to renounce those attitudes and the resulting actions. And the second term that God's grace instructs Christians to forcefully and continually renounce is worldly desires. Now, this phrase refers to strong evil desires that unbelievers passionately pursue. If you happen to have a, a New King James Version in front of you, you'll note that it translates this phrase, worldly lusts, and that is actually a very accurate translation. This term would include desires for all forms of sexual immorality, but also sinful desires for pleasure and sinful desire for riches. Living in a sin-saturated culture like we live in today, uh, it's all too easy for these worldly lusts to seep into a Christian's thinking and their behavior, mine too. 
And God's grace in Christ instructs believers that both ungodliness and worldly desires must be forcefully renounced every single day. And I know from my own experience that, and from many years of counseling people, that at times this daily renunciation, sometimes it it almost feels like it's impossible and feels even pointless. But notice that I said feels impossible. Feels impossible. So often the problem we face as Christians have to do with the viewing situation through the lenses of our emotions and our experience rather than the lenses of the truth of God's Word. The unfailing truth of God's Word in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2-4 through 4, tells us that we have been given every single thing pertaining to life and, yes, godliness. Everything pertaining to godliness. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19-20, The Apostle Paul prays that we would grasp the immeasurable power, the greatness of God's power that's channeled in and through us believers. And this immense power, it's the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It's that huge. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, God emphatically told Paul that his grace was sufficient to overcome his weakness. Because God's power is brought to full energy and complete operation in the midst of such weakness. You see, our our emotions, they, they frequently lie to us. They tell us things that are just, are not true. They try and convince us that we are completely the opposite of what God's word says. And in these type of situations, the the question is, which one are we going to choose to believe? Are we going to believe our emotions and our experiences? Or are we going to believe what God says is really true? And if our experiences and our emotions, if they balk at the truth of God's word, then we must daily reprogram our mind with the absolute truth of God's Word. Now, having reminded Titus what Christians must put off, Paul exhorts Titus about what God's grace instructs them to put on and to live out in place of ungodliness and worldly desires. God's grace trains us to live sensibly and righteously and godly. That's what Paul said. Now, looking a bit more clearly at these three terms, living sensibly has the idea behind it of living in a self-controlled manner, allowing one's behavior to be controlled and moderated by one's, one's mind rather than by emotions. And again, the godly Christian programs into their minds the truth of God and allows it to dominate their thinking. Living righteously has the idea behind it of devoting oneself to obeying God's word that has been implanted and processed in their minds. And the idea of living godly is 
living reverently in communion and in connection with our Lord and honor Him, honoring Him in everything that we think and we do. In summary, God's grace instructs us to be self-controlled in our thinking, to be godly in our interactions with other people, and to be reverent and to live in close communion and fellowship with God. Unless we think this is not possible, God himself would remind us that his grace is sufficient to empower us to obey anything that he commands us to do. Now, though it's not quite as obvious, there's one more item that Paul indicates God's grace instructs believers to put on. In verse 13, it specifies that God's grace instructs us to put on looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are a number of interesting things and important things to note about this instruction. First, the looking for, looking for phrase has the idea behind it of expectingly waiting for a, a very positive event that is certain to happen. If you guys ever booked a, a really cool an exciting vacation and paid for it, and then you had to wait for a long time for it to come, and you were, yeah, looking forward to it. That's what he's talking about here. That's what he's talking about here. In the grammar that Paul uses conveys that our believers are to be continually, eagerly looking forward to these events. Now, what are the events that grace instructs us to continually wait excitedly for? It is the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of Jesus. And the way that Paul phrases this indicates that what he has in view here is the second coming of Jesus rather than what we would call the rapture of the church. At the rapture, Jesus will come and meet those who are left behind on the earth. In the air, he won't actually come to the earth. But in Revelation 19, John speaks of Jesus appearing in the heavens but triumphantly returning to the earth where he will put down all rebellion and meet all his people, establish the millennium, and that will be just the prelude to what he calls the new heavens and the new earth, which is just going to be fabulous for us who are believers. An interesting question that flows out of this is, why would the glorious appearing of Jesus be a motivation for godly living? In the here and now, why would, it, why would it be a motivation? Well, the Apostle John actually helps us answer that question. In 1 John 3, 2 through 3, John makes this observation. He says, Beloved, we now are children of God. It hasn't appeared yet what we will be, but we know that when he appears, there's that word, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has that great hope fixed on him, what do they do? They purify themselves just as he is pure. You see, someday when we see Jesus, we will be instantly transformed into his likeness. We will have, we'll have immortal, indestructible, incorruptible bodies just like Jesus and will eternally enjoy his presence as pure and holy human beings, just, just like he is. And this, that, that is our blessed hope. And I don't know about you, but this glorious truth, 
It makes me want to be holy like him. When I see him, I I want that reunion to be a time of great joy, not a time of shame and sorrow because of my sin. I want to be living as a holy man when I go, go to see him. Okay, let's look now at the third reason why believers should live godly lives. In verse 14, Paul tells Titus that Christians should live godly lives because God's grace reveals his purposes for believers. Jesus, our great God and Savior, graciously gave himself to die on the cross in our place. We've celebrated that this morning. And his purposes in this extravagant offer were actually twofold. Jesus' first purpose was to redeem us from every lawless deed. Every lawless deed. And make no mistake, all of us have committed countless lawless deeds. At really at the core of our sinful thoughts and actions, which we sometimes do, is an underlying unwillingness to subject ourselves to God. We want to do things our way, wanting to be masters of our own lives, and that's why we sin. And this is the essence of what lawlessness is. And we all stand guilty before God, deserving his wrath. But you see, Jesus died to buy us out, to redeem us and save us from the Father's righteous wrath. And the second purpose of Jesus' gracious offering of himself was to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now, when Paul talks about us being Jesus' possession here, he's not talking about us just simply belonging to Jesus, although that, that actually is true. We do belong to him. The idea behind this word is, is really that of being of being a chosen special possession, a treasure. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul prays that the Ephesians would grasp that they are God's inheritance, his dearly loved precious treasure. And, and that's the idea here. Jesus died for the purpose of us becoming his pure spotless bride, his treasure. And because of this act, we will spend a blessed and joyous eternity with him. But his purpose in purifying us to be his dearly loved treasure was also, according to the text here, so that we would be zealously devoted to doing that which is good. First and foremost, that involves being good. That's that's the first part. We have to be good. But it also involves doing good, doing good deeds. And these good deeds would include sharing Christ with other people. It would also involve serving and caring for our brothers and sisters in Christ out of love for them. So we've looked at the three reasons that Paul gave to Titus as to why believers should live godly lives. Now now let's think through together how we should apply this to our own lives. And I'd like to propose three applications for us to consider this morning. First, Jesus' appearing in the world was the ultimate manifestation of God's extravagant grace. His boundless kindness and his massive love for, for mankind was also part of that. 
And because of this, an important and deeply biblical response of his people to that is daily gratitude. And I, and I know I've spoken about a lot about being, you know, having gratitude for things, but such daily thankfulness for our salvation, it, it has the function of resetting our thinking, and it develops a joyous heart, and it, it places us firmly on the path of godliness. And because of this, I would urge all of us, myself included, to make gratitude for God's gracious gift of salvation a daily practice. I, I spend time in that every single morning. As a second application, the appearing of God's grace in the person of Jesus not only revealed the possibility of salvation to all mankind, but it also brought to light the necessity of being transformed into Christ's likeness for those who belong to him. In theological terms, we call this progressive sanctification. If we have come to Christ and trusted in his gracious gospel, then we are empowered by this same grace to daily grow in saying no to ungodliness and worldly desires and to grow in putting on living sensibly and righteously and godly. We've also been grace-empowered to daily live in anticipation of the return of our Savior. This is how progressive sanctification works and functions in our lives. It's really, progressive sanctification is the natural overflow of true saving faith. And it's how Hear me on this. It is how the world sees Jesus in and through us. Just like it did in Bill Bright's life. Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Another more sobering implication of this connection between salvation and progressive sanctification is that if any of us have professed Christ as Savior, but there's no change whatsoever in our behavior since that profession, then we better have a hard look. A hard look at our life because we may not be saved at all. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the Apostle John soberly warned that anyone who continuously and habitually practices sin as a way of life, and I word that very carefully, continuously and habitually practices sin as a way of life, he said he's of the devil. And if this is you, then today is the day to confess your lawlessness and turn to Christ. As a third application, let me read the very next verse after the passage that we studied this morning. Here's what Paul very forcefully commanded Pastor Titus. That's what Titus was. He was pastoring. In Titus 
He said, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. In other words, Titus, God's grace in Christ demands that you teach that a Christian's walk must progressively grow to match a Christian's talk. That same grace of God empowers every Christian to do just that. Titus, you must passively or passionately teach and preach and encourage and correct Cretan congregations, teaching other elders to do that very same thing. Even though you're likely going to get blown off by a lot of them. RBC elders and pastors, this is your job. This is the job that God has given you. And and I know that you guys know this, but I just want to come alongside you and exhort you and encourage you and remind you of that calling. And having lived this out myself for 17 years alongside you guys, I've done it with you, I know that it's frequently, it's frequently not fun. And it's definitely not easy at times. But as a congregation, we need you to live this out reminding us to live out God's word as we follow your example and RBC congregation including me including me do we understand that this is the job that God has given the pastor elder leadership here at RBC. But up and above understanding that, are we willing to graciously and willingly receive their teaching, to receive their exhortation, and to even receive their reproof when we need it? These men have been given the responsibility and it's a heavy responsibility of keeping watch over our souls that's what pastor peter said and we must listen to them we need to obey them we need to treat them respectfully and we need to follow their examples that's why god has appointed them to the positions that he has appointed them to Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that because of your great mercy and grace that you sent Jesus to save us. And Lord, we we so look forward to being able to spend eternity with you, praising you and enjoying your nearness as your precious treasure. That is just stunning. Lord, your grace is outrageous. And thank you that even now you are transforming us into your son's likeness because of that same grace 
and you're using our transformed lives as a witness to those around us. All glory and honor to you, our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.